You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We left off last time with a small band of 18 pirates, including Ravno de Lusan, having just taken a small town in Costa Rica. What Lusan called the boldest, most resolute, and rashest action that could be thought of. And it was those things. If, indeed, it happened. Those eighteen pirates took at least fifty prisoners there in that small town, and when those prisoners attempted escape, killed all but eight. Four men and four women. When we left them, they were riding out of town on stolen horses with their prisoners tied behind them. It was all very spaghetti western. However, we're going to pick up right where we left off, once again, on the run. This is episode 141 with swords in our hands. The pirates and their prisoners were riding away in stealth, trying to be as quiet as possible. We can assume that the prisoners were bound and gagged. But soon, they heard the sound of six hundred cavalrymen on their trail, and they began to ride as hard as possible. The pirates, riding hard, made it to the beach, where a few of their comrades had a beachhead, that were able to hold off the horsemen while they all retreated to their ships. The women were released before they headed to sea, but the four men went with the pirates to be interrogated. Those men told them of the possible ports they might choose, quote, We asked where the galley of Panama was. She lay at anchor in Caldera, where she waited for us, hoping we would pass that way to go to the North Sea, and that the king of Spain's ship, the San Lorenzo, was in the port of Rialejo mounted with many pieces of cannon and four hundred men on board to hinder us. End quote. Those were the two nearest ports to the pirates' location to their east and west and the only potential landing spots aside from where they were right now. As for this landing spot, quote, they laid so many difficulties before us that we grew almost out of conceit with it. But yet, when we considered we must either make our way through or end our days horribly, in an horrible want of all convenient necessaries, and in an enemy country, where we grew weaker every day by the loss of our men. 
We resolved to hazard all to get out of it, being persuaded it would be better for us to die with swords in our hands than to pine away with hunger, we made all things ready for the journey. End quote. There was nowhere to land to the east or to the west. This was their only option, and there were horsemen scouring the countryside. Still, it was all they had. On Christmas Day, 1687, the pirates ran their ships aground, not on the coast, but on an island near the coast. They kept a couple of pirogues around to boat to shore, but their seaworthy vessels, those they ruined to prevent anyone turning back from this course of action. They made a decision here on Christmas Day to make this the moment of no return. Which, I mean, do we believe that? End-of-the-year holidays all have overtones of the winter solstice, the shortest and darkest day of the year. That's why we see the lighting of lights in so many traditions all across the world. And here, the pirates were at their darkest point. But they were prepared to return back home, to return to the light, symbolically speaking, and, as we see, there will be the lighting of lights. I wonder if that's a bit of poetic license on the part of Ravno de Lusanne, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Regardless, the pirates formed into four companies of seventy men each, and there, on that small island, they agreed upon a buccaneer contract. The Forlorn, or the Forlorn Hope, the vanguard of the pirates, those who would be out in front of the main body, they were to be drawn randomly from each of the four companies every morning. Then they agreed on one thousand pieces of eight for any man who was lamed in battle, which should tell you how much money they had to spare here. These men were going home rich. They set out punishments for stragglers, and for drunkenness, and for violence between pirates, and for cowardice. This was all by the book. Then, quote, On the 27th we discovered a ship passing along between the islands, which made us send our galley and pirogue to see what she was. But as soon as we came within shot of her, she took down the white flag and put out Spanish colors and gave us ten or a dozen guns, end quote. Side note, when he says gave us ten or a dozen guns, that wasn't a gift. They were fired upon. But that's a pirate move, isn't it? Sailing in under a flag of truce or a flag of peace, only to raise the colors and open fire with everything you have. It would not surprise me in the least to learn that this ship was under the command of one of those Biscayans, a privateer who knew these tools of the trade. Lusanne writes, quote, this vessel, about noon, came in with the tide, and anchored within half a cannon shot of ours that were run ashore, under the cover of which we fought against them with two pieces of cannon till it was night. End quote. So the pirates still had their big guns on board their ships, though the ships were run aground, but they were able to have a firefight. Come dawn, though, the Spanish opened fire again, with a full broadside, and the pirates were forced to take cover behind some large rocks in the shallow water just off the coast. That bombardment kept up for the better part of a day, with really little effect on either side. The Spanish then moved in closer. They wanted a better vantage on the pirates, but that's actually what the pirates wanted as well. Once the Spanish ship was in position, and even decided to drop anchor there, 
The pirates opened up with their cannon. They sent a few men in clandestinely to man them so the Spanish didn't know it was coming. And then, once the focus was on the cannon, the pirates opened up with small arms and chased the Spanish ship back. However, the anchor was still down. The Spanish had to send a boat over to cut the line, and all of the men on board that boat were massacred. However, the Spanish ship moved in, and under the cover of her big guns, they did manage to cut the anchor loose. That evening, the pirates sent 100 men to the mainland to ensure that they had an escape route once they made it out of this situation. Those men captured some horses and laid down a beachhead. They were prepared to put down any force that the Spanish might raise against them so that the rest of their comrades could land. That same night, to distract the Spanish from what those 100 men going ashore were up to, Luzon writes, quote, For fear the Spanish should suspect the design we had to go to the North Sea, we counterfeited all night long the caulking of our ships, that we might possess them with a belief we were careening them. In the morning, they failed not to come up to destroy, with their cannon, the work they fancied we had been doing. He's saying they pretended to work on their ships so that the Spanish would focus on them. They would come up to destroy them. Luzon continues, On the 30th, we made use of a new stratagem to amuse our enemies, which was to charge our guns, granados, and four pieces of cannon, whereunto we lighted matches. In our absence, the Spanish ship's crew might still believe we were upon the island from whence we parted in the twilight as secretly as ever we could. End quote. They readied their guns, pointed them at the Spanish ship which was just out of range, and lit their matches, which the Spanish in the dark of night could see very clearly, assuming that the pirates were waiting for them to come close. While all eyes were pointed at those lit lights in the dark, the pirates slipped away on their boats, made a wide passage around the Spanish, and made their way to shore. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what you're looking for in a pirate's story or what it is you enjoy about pirates in the first place, but for me, that's it. Backs to the wall, no escape, overwhelming odds against them, the pirates use subterfuge to outwit their honorable foes. I mean, does it get any better than that? Well, I would argue, maybe. At least, you know, I hope it does. The crossing of Central America by these French pirates is one of the lesser-known epics in pirate history. At least, lesser-known to those of us in the English-speaking world. Which is something I'd like to touch for a moment. We've discussed the rather fluid definition of the golden age of piracy before, and we will do so again. But exactly what, or rather exactly when, the golden age of piracy was is up for debate. The broadest definition we see is the whole of the age of sail, which is too broad in my estimation. The narrowest definition gives us the maybe ten years following the Spanish War of Succession, centered almost exclusively in Nassau, except when they move up to North America, to the colonies. That's the period that the English-speaking world, or at least America, usually focuses on. But it's a very Anglo-American-centered view. I prefer to see it as the 60 or so years between 1660 and 1720. 
To my mind, that's the Golden Age, in between, say, Henry Morgan and the end of the Nassau Pirates. But a large chunk of that time period was a French Age. There are stories from the Buccaneers, such as this one, that are as big, if not bigger, than a lot of what we will see later on. However, they're much more infrequently talked about, hardly ever mythologized, again, at least in English. But I keep using those movie analogies in this story, and I'm trying to avoid even more of them, but I do so because this story is so cinematic. I have to try to actively avoid all of the characterization that's in my head for these players, because... To me, they all seem to have such vivid personalities, but a lot of that is more about subtext than, you know, the text. The point is, though, this story is great, and someone should give me a bunch of money to write the script. Disney, Netflix, you're in a bit of a streaming war, and I know you like pirates, so let's get on that. But moving right along. Lusan tells us, quote, on the 1st of January, in the year 1688, we arrived at the continent with all our prisoners, whom we reserved to carry our surgeon's medicines, carpenter's tools, and the wounded men we might have in this passage. The party we had sent before to look for horses had taken 68, along with prisoners, who told us they did not think it advisable we should travel through Segovia, because the Spaniards had intelligence we had made choice of that province. As we had already resolved upon the matter, and that our ships could be of no longer use to us, all that they could say to the contrary did not hinder us. End quote. Segovia, by the way, is part of Nicaragua, but it was at the time a colloquial name for basically the modern border between Nicaragua and Costa Rica. Shortly after disembarking, the crew got all of their belongings together, preparing for a march. That is to say, they had their guns and swords and water jugs, and their packs. Those were full of powder and shot, and personal effects and treasure. However, in the weeks since they had originally split up their shares, shortly after Guayaquil, a lot of money had changed hands between the pirates. They loved to gamble, and some pirates were very, very good at it. Others, less so. And many of those that were less lucky were not exactly what we would call money-savvy or intelligent. They gambled, and they lost, and they gambled again to win their money back from their extraordinarily lucky, or perhaps very fast-fingered, compatriots. And sometimes they would win a little bit back to keep them intrigued, but they rarely won much of it. Thus, there were a bunch of pirates who had no money, and others who had well more than their share. The pirates who had extra money had two major problems here. First of all, they had a bunch of gold and silver which would weigh them down on their trek across country. Second, though, and perhaps even more concerning, they had a bunch of other pirates who, while they might not be able to prove they were cheating, were liable to kill them for it anyway. Pirates like Ravneau de Lusanne tended to win on the big bets. He writes, quote, As for myself, I must say, though my charge was lighter than others, it was not all that less considerable in value, seeing I had converted 30,000 pieces of eight into gold, pearls, and precious stones. 
As the best part of this was the product of luck I had at play, some of those who had been losers, being much discontented at their losses, plotted together to murder the richest among us. I was advertised of it by some friends, which did not a little disquiet to my mind, for it was a very difficult task, during so long a journey, to be able to secure himself from being surprised by those who were continually in the same company, with whom he must eat, drink, and sleep, who could cut off whom they pleased in the conflicts with the Spaniards by shooting us during the hurry." Lusan is telling us that in addition to his share, he had won a total of 30,000 pieces of eight, and converted that into gold and jewels. That's impressive, perhaps a bit dastardly, but do you see what I'm talking about when it comes to characterization? That's a scene from a movie, with Lusan as the protagonist. Young, educated, probably handsome, a bit bookish what with writing his journal, but also dashing and brave, as he joined those eighteen pirates who took that town last time. You can picture the drama unfolding as a group of dirty and violent buccaneers size up the right time to murder him and rob his corpse, probably on the battlefield as they fight the Spanish. However, those pirates who had won more than their share had a very simple solution. They asked the losers to carry a portion of their loot. Quote, the apprehensions I had of this conspiracy did not hinder my judgment and presence of mind upon such methods to secure the preservation of my life, to deposit some of what I possessed in the hands of diverse persons upon condition they should restore unto me such a proportion as I agreed with them for. I rid myself of the care I should continually have had of keeping upon my guard without exposing those who carried my effects. It's true I paid dear for this precaution, but what will not a man do to save his life? End quote. What he's saying, in a very roundabout fashion, is that he asked others to carry some of his treasure, and in return he gave them some of it. His own share, perhaps, he carried in his pack, but the rest, his winnings, was split up between half a dozen others or so. In that way, he would lose half his winnings, but he would ensure that he made it home alive. That is, of course, assuming the Spanish didn't kill him. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies well of course you dig her up and you live with her Aww. the show examines weird things there are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses oh i miss those days things used to be so much simpler cat and jethro then there's the urine wheel which sounds like a really bad game show they've done weird things we 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And that brings us to 1688. At this point, I almost wish that I'd found another story to tell. Maybe that of Bachelor's Delight and Edward Davis, a story that would round out the year. Because at this point, Luson's journal really gets broken down day by day, very much like a proper diary. It might be fun to tell his story in real time, week by week, But I did not do that, so I won't do that. 1688, though, is a big year in the story of the pirates. I mean, it's no 1492, nor is it even a 1715. But there are a ton of big events that would shake the world at large and the world of the pirates. If you'll forgive the pun, it marks a sea change for the pirates. But we'll get to all of that much later. For now... These French pirates at the dawn of 1688 on the Spanish Main. They set out on the 2nd of January, after sinking their boats to march through the countryside. Actually, the first week is pretty dull, so it's probably for the best I'm not doing this week by week. Mostly, Luson spends his time describing the places they stopped to quote-unquote bait. And I initially had no idea what the word bait meant in that context. I thought maybe to hunt, you know, to set out bait for the prey to come in. But that's not the case, and if you happen to be a language nerd, as I am, it's actually kind of interesting. The term bait is kind of an archaic term that means to pause a journey to rest and eat and drink. The people who would be most likely to be familiar with that term in the modern world are probably horse people. It's still used in regard to pausing to rest and water your horses. And it appears that even by the time that this book was published in the late 17th century, it was an archaic term in English. It's more of an old English thing, comes from the Germanic. But it seems to be the best translation they had for the French word that Luson used. However, these pirates were not marching alone. They had their prisoners and their horses carrying some of their goods, but the Spanish were also very much aware of the pirates' presence there. But it's not as though the Spanish were just going to fall on them and attack. This was a column of nearly 300 heavily armed and very experienced killers. That's not an easy target, even for the Spanish soldiers in the region. Quote, The Spaniards, notwithstanding all the precautions we had taken, were advertised of our departure, and failed not to let us have their company, keeping themselves always in our flanks and rear. On the 8th we lay at a hatto, about which place the enemy began to barricade the ways. We rested at an estancia to bait, and upon a bed in an hall there we found the following letter directed unto us in these words. And now quoting that letter from the Spanish, We are very glad that you have made choice of our province for your passage home, but we are sorry you are no better laden with silver. However, if you have occasion for mules to carry your baggage, we will send them to you. We hope to have the French General Groenet very quickly in our power, 
and we will leave you to consider what is like to become of the soldiers. End quote. And that's just so good, isn't it? First of all, it shows us that the Spanish did not know that Francois Groenet was dead, but more than that, it's a beautiful kind of threat. We know exactly where you are. We could send mules or horses to you at any moment, and we are prepared to reclaim all of our silver, and we want to leave it to you to think about how we're going to do so. That's a beautiful example of psychological warfare. In fact, we're going to see a lot of psychological warfare today, a lot of irregular warfare from the Spaniards. But we have a reasonable picture of what this march looked like. This was an army, a small army. By continental standards, they would have been no more than a battalion. But in the Central American wilderness, they were an army. They were tough, haggard French pirates that were marching with their muskets loaded and their matches lit. And think about the forlorn, the vanguard that was out in front, forty men strong, marching through woodland and over savannas, through plantations and cattle ranches, and all the while keeping their eyes constantly peeled, every time they emerged from the trees waiting for an ambush, every time they topped a hill they had to stop and pause, not giving themselves away to scour the surrounding countryside. This was not a fast march. And, of course, every time they went back into the woods, that was where the Spanish were most likely to be waiting. The same day that they found that letter, when their nerves were likely a little bit frayed, they met their first ambuscade. Shortly after entering the tree line, there was a hiss, a crack, and then a flurry of hot iron that ripped through the front line of the forlorn. That's why they're the forlorn. The vanguard fired back at the Spanish, and they had the discipline and the skills to push them away, but even still, it felt easy. It looks like the Spanish were not here to destroy the pirates, but merely to harry them. To kill a few of them, which they did, but that would keep the pirates on edge, and it made them take the time to bury the dead, or at least split up their treasure and take their boots and their guns. Then they had to reload the guns that had been discharged and to refresh the vanguard. That all took time. And it was that time, as much as the desire to instill fear, that the Spanish were after. And we can say that because of the evidence at their next, most logical stopover, a hato. And a hato was kind of a mainstay on large Spanish ranches. It was basically just a building with food and water and shade for the ranchers to rest. They are seen still today on ranches in the American West and much of Mexico. Those Hato provided most of the sustenance for the pirates on this voyage so far, but at their next stop, they found it empty. The Spanish had used the time they bought in that ambuscade to empty the Hato of anything that the pirates could use. No food, no water, and the shelter and shade burned. It became very quickly apparent that this was the plan, a scorched-earth campaign on the part of the Spaniards. Again, irregular warfare. Quote, The Spaniards, who left no means unattempted to destroy us, burnt all the provision that was in our way, and when we entered into savannas where the grass was very dry, they went to windward of us to set it on fire, whereby we were very much incommoded, 
and our horses were even stifled with the smoke. As we were sometimes obliged to stay till the fire had burnt up all to go forwards, this very much retarded our march, and this was the chief thing the Spaniards aimed at, that their men might have leisure to finish a retrenchment. End quote. The Spanish were buying time. They set fire to grasslands, which made the pirates pause. Whenever they entered into a woodland, the trail they would find blocked by pine trees, and they would have to take the time to cut through it. It made their march agonizingly slow, and worse because there were no more cattle to hunt. There was no more food or water on their path. There was no sustenance anywhere. It was frustrating. Quote, we persuaded ourselves that they did all this to chagrin us only, having not the courage to do worse. We passed a sugar plantation, and our company filed off, but twenty of us stayed behind at the house and set it on fire, to oblige the Spaniards to come and put it out, and this they failed not to do. Thereupon they fled, yet we, firing upon them, wounded one and took him, by whom we understood that their reinforcements were coming to dispute our passage, who consisted of three hundred men. We rejoined our main body, and came to a great burrow, where we found those three hundred men, who afterwards were our continual guard. And, by the way, when he says those three hundred men, their continual guard, he means the Spanish, not their comrades. He continues, They gave us morning and evening the diversion of their trumpets, but t'was like the music of the enchanted palace of Saika, who heard it without seeing the musicians, for hours marched on each side of us in places so covered with pine trees that it was impossible to perceive them. End quote. Those three hundred Spaniards surrounded the pirates, out of sight due to the trees, but constantly they blared their trumpets and beat their drums day and night. Now I have no idea what the Enchanted Palace of Sika is. Google only gave me results from this book. I don't know if it's a French fairy tale or maybe an archaic spelling of a Bible story. If you know, let me know. But right now, who cares? There's a fight coming. The pirates found themselves on a hilltop, for fear of being hemmed in, with a strong guard around the perimeter. Just out of sight were all of the Spaniards surrounding their hill. Could you sleep in that circumstance? As the enemy blared trumpets and laughed all night long, an enemy that outnumbered you, if only by twenty men. However, no attack came that night. The Spanish were probably sleeping, in shifts though, half of them playing trumpets in the direction of the pirates, the others, ears plugged, sleeping soundly. That would keep the pirates awake all night while the Spanish got at least a reasonable night's sleep. Again, irregular warfare. I vaguely remember a news story in which the U.S. Army played, I want to say it was Metallica, all throughout the night during a hostage situation, if I'm remembering it correctly. That's a tactic that works. Come dawn, the French decamped and prepared for the day's march, which they were going to be allowed to do. This wasn't a battle they were preparing for. However, they doubled their forlorn to eighty men, and the forlorn had special instructions. The reason they doubled them to eighty men, every time they came to a wood, a tree line, 
half of the men were to fire into that tree line in lieu of a Spanish ambush, while the others waited with guns at the ready. According to Ravno de Luzon, quote, Our advanced guard were appointed to fire their muskets at the entries of the woods in case the Spanish laid ambuscades for us. About ten in the morning, we passed on to a place that was so thin-set with wood that we might see a considerable distance, and, seeing no enemy, we did not fire at all. But we did not dream that we were seeking for that far before us, which we had at the sides of us. For the Spaniards who were ranged to the right and left, lying on their bellies, made their discharges with so much precipitation that there was no more than one half of our advanced guard who had time to answer their firing. End quote. Which is to say, the Spanish were waiting, on their bellies, not to the front, but to the side, like velociraptors. Now the main body of the pirates rushed in to aid the forlorn who were under fire, but they were too late. The Spanish had already vanished into the woods. However, they left a good number of the vanguard wounded or bleeding, or dead. There was another ambuscade the following day but the pirates had learned their lesson here. They assumed nothing about any tree line, and when they fired, some of them fired lower and in a much wider arc than they had before. This time, they heard a horse scream, and presently, the pirates got down low, which was good thinking. The answering salvo came from the Spanish quickly, but it flew harmlessly over the pirates' heads. When the forlorn investigated, they found blood throughout the tree line, and then a dead Spaniard, and then a wounded horse. The horse, which they shot, was even more welcome than the dead Spaniard. The pirates were hungry, not yet hungry enough to turn cannibal or anything drastic like that, but tonight, horse was on the menu. These attacks continued for several days, and they always played out in a similar fashion. The pirates were fired upon, and then... As Luzon tells us, they bravely fought the Spanish dogs back with our fusees. But they didn't fight the Spanish back. The Spanish didn't want a firefight, because the pirates always left dead men behind. Some Spaniards usually died as well, but more pirates. The Spanish tactics appeared to be working, and if things kept up in this fashion, they weren't going to be strong enough to hold back a proper Spanish attack. And even if they were, all the while, in the distance, the Spanish were building a proper defensive fortification. And that, today, is where we're going to leave the pirates, on the road, wounded and bleeding. But before we leave today, there's something that's been nagging the back of my mind throughout this story. Something about these Spanish tactics feels very familiar, and I think I finally put my finger on it. So, the pirates had weapons from all around the world, and they had the best weapons that money could buy, or that they could steal. But on the other hand, the Spanish Empire had some serious, systemic problems. The Empire had such restrictive rules surrounding colonial buying practices that the garrisons were always poorly supplied in this era. They were poorly armed and usually ill-prepared for any sort of battle, they were low on powder, their guns were outdated. It was an issue, an issue that would come to bite them. But their tactics, their style of warfare against the pirates here in Central America, it looks a lot like much more modern 
warfare as we've seen across Central America. It's a clear representation of early guerrilla warfare. And that's something that we see from all over the Spanish world. Cuba during the Spanish-American War at the turn of the century. Cuba in 1961 during the revolution held all of Latin America in their revolutions throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Even in Spain during the Civil War in the 30s. It's a mainstay of Spanish military tactics, but it wasn't before this period. And I wonder if it came from the native peoples that they fought in their conquests during the 1500s. I wonder if the Spanish learned the best tactics from their numerically and technologically disadvantaged enemy. I wonder if they adopted that a century or so later when they found themselves at the same numerical and technological disadvantages. It's odd to think of a behemoth such as the Spanish Empire employing tactics that would later be used by scrappy revolutionaries that were used by pirates, but it's what they were doing. However, that's where we're going to leave it, because next time the pirates are going to come to the town of Segovia and move on to the mountains beyond. Mountains that, even in Central America, they had to cross in January. If you want a preview of that, I suggest reading up on Hannibal crossing the Alps, or the Fellowship crossing Karataras. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family or online, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillic. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com or get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight